From the Kennan Institute, I am Isabella Tabarovsky, and you are listening to The Russia File. Today, we're talking about the second anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. This is part one of our conversation. In this episode, we'll be speaking to Dr. Mikhailo Mishaminakov. We'll be talking about the situation in Ukraine and why Ukraine finds itself at the second year anniversary of this terrible war. Misha Minakov is a senior associate with the Canon Institute. He heads our Ukraine program. He's also the editor-in-chief of the Canon Institute's Focus Ukraine blog. Misha, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me here, Isabella. Misha, I want to start by asking you, how are you on the second anniversary? What are you thinking? What are you feeling? Could you even have imagined two years ago that we would be having this conversation two years later? Well, no, of course not. Like many other experts, I was sure that this arm wrestling that Putin was doing on the border with Ukraine, it's just another way of political pressure. However, he was not intelligent enough to start this war and criminal enough to start this war and terrible annihilation of Ukraine as it was before that war. Well, this kind of anniversary is it's a good reason to turn back, look retrospectively, assess what was happening, my own ideas, the situation on the ground and the path of Ukraine. Right before the war in 2021, you remember that Canon Institute and a number of Ukrainian and Western scholars together wrote a history of Ukraine, of independent Ukraine, the 30 years of independence. And I think, well, I was rereading it recently, and I see how some intrinsic optimism was part of this project. So despite the ongoing Donbass war already this time, many challenges, economic, social, security-wise, everything was there, but still the way authors were looking at Ukraine was optimistic, open-ended. The future was rather bright than dark. And now... I think would we write this book, it would totally be dedicated to how everything was going to this terrible war. I think one thing that, of course, everybody has faced and has seen, some with surprise and some with a sense of, well, we would have expected this, is that the remarkable resilience that Ukraine has shown over these past two years. I really don't think that there were people who wouldn't have expected that Ukraine would even withstand the initial assault, let alone be able to stay this long. So I want us to talk today about the sources of this resilience. We talked a little bit about it the other day, about the various elements of this resilience. So maybe let's talk first about the most obvious, perhaps, part of it, the military resilience. Where is Ukraine now militarily at this moment? Well, Probably one big difference is that in 2014-15, I was doing a series of interviews with Ukrainian military on the front line in Donbass. And quite often, Ukrainian military were repeating this phrase, you guys in Kiev, you made Maidan, and we now have to make this war. And it was kind of like disrespect to political activists from Kiev. In 22, since 22, this kind of division, there was any. I would say that partially this military dimension of Ukrainian resilience is connected that army has changed since 2014 tremendously. It became much more modernized. It's much more connected to Ukrainian society. 
and it's very much connected with Western security structures. So I would say that this is the biggest difference in 10 years and also in two years. In 22, you also see how the security institutions of Ukraine were in shock and how for certain period up until probably April, May, Ukrainian government, the commander-in-chief, chief generals, they were looking for the ways to reorganize resistance and to link Ukraine with all these additional sources of resilience. And it was done successfully. So whatever happens with Commander Zaluzhny, and today we see that presidential office started audit of army, there is a conversations, talks, widely published in press about his firing. But General Commander Zaluzhny and his team of generals they definitely made a difference and a huge progress for Ukrainian army. There's another part of this success which ties partnership with the West. So far, it's still partnership. It's not alliance. Yes, in Ukraine, politicians, citizenry, generals, rank-and-file soldiers, everyone wants an alliance to be allies with the West. It's not yet there. However, there was an idea of Prime Minister Rishi Sunak about sending the first expeditionary corps to Ukraine from NATO countries or UK. It wasn't clear in his statement. But even two years after, we can say that there are links, there are very much advanced ties between the general staff of Ukraine and United States with the Pentagon, also with Brussels, with the NATO headquarters. And this kind of partnership has also provided Ukrainian army with something that allowed, first of all, to return over 50% of the territories that were initially occupied by Russian forces. And also now when there's a new phase, when Ukrainian initiative is limited and Russian forces are more having prevalence in this initiative, the front line is very stable. And yes, if we look from this front line, it stabilized approximately in the times of October 23. It's not changing except for some parts like Avdiivka or Marinka. Russia is piling its resources on several directions in Kharkiv Oblast, also in Kherson Oblast. But even there, where you can see double prevalence of Russian forces or resources, the front line is quite stable. Right now, Ukraine moved to creation of a strategic defense line. There will be three layers of this line. The priority is, of course, in Donbass and in the Parisia Oblast. But you can also see that there's construction works are going on on the border with Russia and with Belarus in other parts. So basically, we have a very long fortification works right now, and it will be continued this year in order to ensure that any attempt of Russian forces to attack Ukraine would not have success. You mentioned as you were talking, you were actually comparing where the Ukrainian army is today, not two years later, but 10 years later, going back to 2014. And I think it's a really important comparison because I remember I was in Kiev in 2015. And the thing that was so extraordinary about that moment is the unpreparedness of the army 
and the incredible effort that civil society put into supplying the army, giving it everything it wanted. I still remember a conversation with a professor in Kiev, someone that you know really well. I'm not going to mention him, but we were having a coffee in Kiev, and he's a very mild-mannered man, academic. And all of a sudden, he tells me, well, you know, I have to go because we bought some equipment, raised money abroad, bought some equipment. I have to go take it to the front. And I remember sitting there looking at him, just completely incredulous, like, what, you're going to drive something to the front? He's like, yeah, just don't tell my wife. I try not to worry her. So the mobilization of the civil society was just really incredible. Today, the Ukrainian army is in a completely different place. I think even by February of 2022, it was in already a different place. And some people two years ago were surprised that Ukraine put up so much resistance. I was not surprised at all, because I always knew that Ukrainians would resist. But I want to ask you, how's the level of morale in the army and perhaps in the broader society? We'll talk more about the broader society, but in the army two years later, are people as determined to fight? What is your sense? Well, of course, the morale was higher in summer last year when there was a counteroffensive and the Ukrainian army aspired to free southern Ukrainian territories. It did not succeed, and of course, army does not succeed to achieve certain goals. It does not have the highest level of morale. There's no also backslide of morale. You definitely see this resistance or resilience in Avdiivka is a heroic action. And this heroism, every day, every night, every minute, and this connection of army and local communities and of Ukrainian society is huge. I talked to my mom, who lives in a village not far from Zaporizhia, and she was telling how she and her friends, all the ladies, retired, gather different materials to assist soldiers. And the soldier from this village, who came for several days in rotation to have rest at his parents' house, he collected all these things, and it was so heavy that he couldn't even lift them. Strong man. He was hugely grateful to these ladies, to community, and of course, this kind of thing shows that every visit, every link, every contact returns energy for Ukrainian forces to resist. There's also definitely this complication that we have right now between generals and civil government. It also could be not only a problem, but also a solution. The war issues, there's a need to review the plans for future of Ukrainian army. And this dispute that is going on right now it remains civil. It remains limited to strategic issues. And I hope as a result, whether there will be changes or not, our Ukrainian army will come out of it with some additional force. That's also important. And finally, I would say that the morale in Ukrainian army and those circles around it volunteer organizations that are like in the shadow between civil society and army itself that bring a lot of additional resources to army, that make sure that soldiers are warm, fed, they receive additional supplies of drones and so on. It's there. And I definitely see that in local communities in this left bank, in southern Ukraine, government-controlled territories, there's no tiredness. So I see that in press, there's a discussion, oh, there's fatigue of the society, of Western partners. 
I can't say for Western partners, but I can say that in local communities that support Ukrainian army, on left bank and in south, there's no fatigue. Are you worried at all? You mentioned this, and you know, of course, we're recording at a time when the rift between Zelensky and the commander-in-chief uh, Valery Zeluzhny is coming to a head. Are you worried about this rift? Because Zeluzhny has been a very popular figure. So what are you making of this? Well, Zeluzhny is a popular leader and a decent man and a very important figure in this resistance of the first years of the war. Of course, the dispute between commander-in-chief and president and commander Zaluzhny has its risks. But it also shows that civil government, the politicians control army, that Ukraine remains democracy. Yes, it's imperfect democracy. Yes, it's democracy at war. But it remains structurally democratic. And there's citizens oversight, the civic elected government oversight over the army and generals accepted, which also shows how important is this solidarity. Unlike in many other countries of the world, in Near East, in Middle East and Northern Africa, you see how armies, generals are a specific caste, and they organize politics around them. In Ukraine, it's not the case. In this particular dispute, whichever outcome there will be, it shows that Ukraine remains structurally democratic. Well, and this is a perfect segue to the next topic that we have on our agenda as we discuss Ukraine's resilience. The other important factor, crucial factor, is political resilience. And of course, Ukraine being a democracy is what distinguishes it from Russia and makes it such a crucial and valuable ally for the West. But questions are now being raised about the legitimacy of the current leadership. There's a notion that the legitimacy is exhausting itself. Do you agree with that? Well, of course, there's a formal limits to legitimacy of government, elected government, elected president, elected parliament, and constitutionally it's for five years. However, Ukrainian constitution has an article that prohibits elections during the war, parliamentary elections, which ensures that Ukrainian parliament, even though its formal legitimacy expires in August this year, it will remain legitimate internally. And of course, externally, Western partners understand and support this institution and this part of Ukrainian government. More issues are connected with the legitimacy of president. Constitution keeps silence on elections during war here, but we can also use the spirit of constitution prohibiting elections during difficult times of war. Maybe it can be extended. Otherwise, there's also a solution in form of government or cabinet of national unity. If there is a case and there's a visible damage of this exhausting mandate of president, which is due May 24, then there are solutions to this as well. And of course, Ukraine during this war is changing so much. There will probably be a new constitutional process, new assembly in future that will reconstruct Ukraine. And the way we deal with these issues in Ukraine, they also prepare a future return to civil democracy in Ukraine. However, it's important to see that president and parliament are in contact discussion. It shows that there are differences in opinions, but there's a process of negotiations. Internal political competition is in place, and it's limited by the needs of solidarity, but also 
it preserves the structure of living democracy. That said, we should also remember about the risk that if we look at the context of Eastern Europe, right now we have election issues with Russia and Belarus. This year, in March, we have elections of Putin, and it's clear what kind of electoral process it is. That's more an institution of post-Soviet autocracy that should demonstrate to its population, but also to its allies and its rivals, that Putin and his clique are in control of politics, economy, and society. And this is planned to be demonstrated. There's also another electoral process in Belarus, where the first Eastern European dictator, Lukashenko, is aged. He prepares his retirement. There's a new legislative act approved last year where all the guarantees for Lukashenko are prescribed even after his resignation. But it looks like he's going to be the incumbent as well. So we should pay attention to what will happen there. Anyway, these autocracies in Eastern Europe, they prepare their electoral mandate. And it's one of the challenges for Ukraine, definitely here. Ukrainian democracy continues war with two autocracies. However, these autocracies have elected leaders, of course, falsely elected, but for many countries in global south, in northern Eurasia, it's very important. And for Kyiv, there is a need to think smart and prospectively also in regional competition also at this level. In other words, to be able to say that, to prove that we have the ongoing legitimacy and the ongoing mandate to continue with the war. But there are, of course, risks of an election at wartime, and Ukraine is not the only one that faces this risk. You know, there are questions about elections in Israel as well. What are the risks of conducting elections at wartime? They're pretty significant. Absolutely, especially at the war of this kind as we have in Ukraine. So basically, you have very big quarter of voters who left abroad. Another important 10 to 15% of population are IDPs. It means internally displaced people who live in new places, new communities, and they have issues with access to possible electoral poll stations. So in a way... Even the voting, even though electoral process is longer, bigger, but even the voting itself is close to impossible. The ideas how to organize it electronically, online, or to organize it some other way, but it would not create additional, well, it would not create the necessary trust to the results of elections. So why would we need elections? And a couple of weeks ago, I was in D.C. and this issue was brought permanently by American experts, American politicians, and bureaucrats. And the question is, why would we need these elections? And the answer is that government has a full recognition, democratic mandate, and democratic legitimacy. Agreed. But if we organize elections in this hugely destructured, destroyed society, where many social groups would not be able to participate, in elections. And during the war and hits on rear and frontline areas, you cannot normally vote even there. So it means that we would have elections that would not produce the outcome 
of democratic legitimacy for government. Ukrainian society has a record of being sensitive to this honesty of electoral results. In 2004, there was electoral revolution. In 2019, there was electoral revolution again. Well, honest elections. There was no mass process movement. But elections are important. And here we definitely see the risk. If we conduct elections in these conditions and society does not trust, it would just add a challenge to government and political order in times of war of attrition. Well, it's a really important point. And we just published an article recently on Focus Ukraine, which we will include in our show notes, where it says that, according to recent polls, some 80% of Ukrainian voters actually prefer to not conduct the elections now, to postpone them till the end of the war for fear that it will interfere with the war effort. Exactly, exactly. Alan Dovlikanova, author of this article, but also many other experts from Ukraine, and then this wide sectors of population, they are in agreement. It is reasonable to postpone. Democracy should be a proper process, not only this formal outcome. But again, in order to have strong legitimacy, there are other ways of making sure that Ukrainian government has democratic support and democratic mandate to govern further. Let's talk about what's going on on the social level. Ukrainian society has undergone a massive transformation. You've already mentioned it. Millions of Ukrainians are now in Europe. Some actually are in Russia. What can we say in terms of demography, immigration, and how has that influenced Ukrainian society and its resiliency? Yeah, well, it's just another source of Ukraine's resilience, this society. We were slowly adapting. We were learning how to live under the conditions of war since 2014. It was a slow process. It was a learning curve that showed in 22 that society still can survive. Yes, a huge number of Ukrainians, mainly women and children, have left Ukraine. There's also these IDPs, which I mentioned. There are also people who are unoccupied territories. Today, there's a huge debate between different experts. What is the number of Ukrainian population? on government-controlled territories. Well, in Focus Ukraine, we published already several times materials by Ella Libanova, the leading specialist on Ukrainian demography. Right now, we prepare for Canon Cable a special report that she wrote. And this report is based on a project, a draft strategy of Ukrainian demographic development. And it's very sober and realist analysis of what it is right now. So we have a new human geography in Ukraine. Ukrainian urban population was concentrated in the southeast, in big industrial cities or post-industrial cities, Kharkiv, Donetsk, Luhansk, Dnipropetrovsk, Zaporizhia, Odessa, Mykolaiv. And these are big cities that organize also economically and demographically, this, well, very industrial modernist way of life. There was also other part of Ukraine around Kiev. Kiev as a political administrative center and economically the richest city. And it's an agglomerate also with population tending to live around it. And then there was the central western Ukrainian territories where more rural uh, way of life, smaller cities, 
but with also its own chic and culture of life, high quality, high standard of life. And ecology, of course, was much better than in Southeast. So these three parts are non-existent today. Uh, a huge number of urban population from Southeast moved to Kyiv and to Western Ukraine or abroad. In this front line in former urban areas, we have mainly soldiers, military structures, and older population. And central Ukraine, where a lot of men were drafted, so more and more economic role of women was growing. I know one agricultural company from central Ukraine that used to have 500 men as security department there. All this department went to army in 22. And right now, the security department has the same number of personnel, but all of them are women. And they provide security for this agricultural company. But if we look at other formerly male professions in this company, they are also taken by women. So women's role is growing economically. And society, of course, tries to find its own ways of first survival, second resilience, and third supporting army. It's also kind of part of your daily routine is, okay, I'll do something for the army or I will prepare some jam, some pickles and so on, and it will be sent to army using volunteers. Recently, another expert from Ukraine, Larisa Pilhun, made a research based on a huge number, like hundreds of interviews in 22 and 23 with Ukrainian volunteers. What are their motivations? Where do they get resources? How they combine this minimum of work that they would need to get their wage to continue living and provide for their families, but also they work for army, supporting army. And it's very interesting report. I hope we will also ask Larissa to write for Focus Ukraine several materials in order just to understand from within how Ukrainians were changing during this war and how this change is now institutionalized. So it's a set of rules, a set of practices that is being repeated or other people now enter into it. What is your sense of unity in the Ukrainian society? Yeah, there are cleavages, definitely. After probably the first year, society is basically very much motivated just to survive and to resist successes on the front line and also normalization of life under the war. Also internal politics, returned competition between different parties. There are several new cleavages. One of the cleavages that is visible is between those who stayed and those who went abroad. This is seen within companies or within universities. You can see this within communities, smaller communities. That's one type of cleavage. Another cleavage right now is organized around the draft law on mobilization. So that's where also generals and politicians are debating right now. And what is the debate around? What are the main arguments in that debate? Well, if we look socially, it's the families, that part of society, which consists of families that have sent their members to the front line. So they are in army. And those families who still avoid mobilization, this kind of social cleavage is in place. But if we look at parliament, at political level, 
The debate is how to organize properly mobilization, make it normal, make it open for planning, just to understand what is the demography in Ukraine, how to invite men and certain professionals who are women to army, and how to ensure that those who are already for two years on front line, they would have ability to return at which moment to return home or rotate and have rest and then return to the front line. So this kind of issues are in place. And of course, the debate at political and legal level is how to combine this duty to defend your country with obligations of state to respect human rights. And again, it shows how structurally Ukraine remains democracy. And you mentioned the issue of between those who left and those who stayed. What are the arguments there? Well, what kind of citizen you are? If you left, should you remain professor at that university? Or are you still a member of this community? Do you have the right for this land plot? Do you still have right for your apartment? What are the rights of those, if we talk about mobilization, for example, if uh, you're a man and you're hiding from drafting, what is the punishment? Will your bank account be blocked? Will you be punished if you show up to the drafting place? And so on. And so this kind of debate is in place. And it also questions the spirit of citizenship. Who are citizens? What are duties and obligations? What are the rights? Well, and this it's striking to hear about it because, of course, within the Russian society, you can't have a conversation right. about this. There's just silence and nobody really even knows what anybody thinks. There is a set of norms that you're supposed to adopt and that's it. And in Ukraine, there is, as you say, there's a debate about what does it mean to be a citizen? I mean, it's such a crucial debate in any democracy. So let's talk about what's going on economically. How is Ukrainian economy doing at this point? Well, the first year, Ukraine lost approximately one third of its economy. Now there's a slow return to growth. This year, according to data of World Bank and of Ukrainian government, the expected growth is between three and a half to even four percent. But of course, after that big loss, it's an issue. Well, Ukrainian economy lives in a difficult period. So if you look at the structure of this economy, the big industry is functioning at the minimum of its abilities. So many oligarchic industries like in Azov, Azovstal, or in Kriminchuk, there was a huge oil refinery. They are partially or totally destroyed. There are big industrial plots like in Krivirich. The middle still functions, but constantly in a very difficult situation because every heat on energy system means that the plant doesn't work for some period. Well, in this kind of settlement, big business, big industry disappeared. Oligarchy itself, we see how it loses its economic power, which cannot be any more converted into political power. And that's a totally new Ukrainian situation. Oligarchs influence negatively competition in Ukraine. Without it, competition will probably return to Ukraine as a market economy. But there's also an issue for small business, which will now have to pay bigger taxes. It's still in process. The new tax policy is in process because Ukrainian government needs to collect more and more resources to sustain armed forces. Today, in principle, everything that Ukraine collects in Ukrainian economy, on Ukrainian soil, 
goes to the life of society of especially retired people or the so-called budgetnik or people who depend on state budget like hospitals like schooling they all depend on western support yes now recently just a few days ago council of europe the, the council of ministers of european union have approved a new long term program for supporting ukraine direct budget support 50 billion euros and this year at least since we talking to american audience at least 13 billion dollars will be given to ukraine maybe bigger portion will be given to ukraine to support ukraine's government in its social policies and some other areas that's a very important part and of course american support for ukraine both military support and financial support is crucial according to the estimations of ukrainian government in 22 every month ukraine needs around 3 and 1/2 billion dollars in order to survive and resist in this war right now we have approximately well i mean 3 and 1/2 billion dollars from outside sources right now for this year we have approximately half and of course this debate on the hill and delay with american support hits hard ukrainian economy but even in these conditions if you look at these two last months when american and european support was delayed ukrainian currency stayed more or less stable there is inflation but it's not argentina or turkey in terms of inflation so this ukrainian financial miracle is here and you can see that even in the bad case scenarios bad periods ukrainian financial resilience one more dimension of resilience is in place so in a way ukrainian economy right now is connected to agriculture and the trade with euro or through europe is critically important and this one this route is hindered as well the movement of farmers in europe especially in poland especially in romania in central european countries hits hard when there is a blockade according to ukrainian government ukrainian economy lost more than 2 billion dollars last fall because of this blockade when ukrainian agricultural product couldn't go to european market thanks god there is this ongoing cooperation with romania through romanian ports ukrainian agricultural products are being sold globally but of course there is a need to return to normal economic relations with our political and military friends but economic rivals in Poland and other countries in central europe i see how many efforts are applied by european commission to mediate but the farmers from central europe they have their own interests they have their own problems and politicians so far didn't find the way how to balance ukrainian interests and their farmers interests in these matters misha i want to ask you we're recording this just as a big package of next package of support for ukraine is being discussed in congress i want to ask you and of course american aid has been crucial for ukraine Absolutely. to be able to resist and maintain its resiliency what would you say to those lawmakers in the us who are hesitant to pass this support and who are questioning america's support for ukraine what would you say to them in order to convince them 
it's not even a theoretical question because I witnessed these kind of questions and debates just two weeks ago in DC. My answer is that there is a partnership, a long-term strategic partnership between US and Ukraine. And this framework per se is a value. Ukraine has a value for United States and United States have value for Ukraine and it's mutual interest to continue cooperation. It would be hugely important to decouple Ukrainian support from other issues which are very important for United States, for American people. Probably it was a mistake to join Ukrainian issue with some others. And maybe it's time to make a step back to respect the political diversity, to respect differences in American politics, but return to this bipartisan support of Ukraine, which we saw before September 23. What happened? Well, basically, we are in the same position. We are strategic partners, and this partnership should be reinstated. Let's remember that, yes, practical interests, security, other security challenges that the United States have globally are important. But the war against Russia in Ukraine is one of the core issues for United States as well. Just remember what happened in Afghanistan. Does America want to return to the same position again? Crucial question. Misha, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Isabella, and thank you to our audience for listening. This concludes part one of our conversation reflecting on the second anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. I am Isabella Tabarovsky. Thank you for listening, and we look forward to having you with us for the next episode of The Russia File.